Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. I, I, people give me tons of um, ideas on this one. I keep reading new, you know, psychological theories and stuff like that. Um, you know, I was under pressure, I was a little bit tired, or I was lonely, or I fell down the stairs when I was a child, or whatever. Um, You're no picnic, all right? You're a spoiled little brat, even. But under that, you're the most amazingly, astounding, wonderful girl, woman that I've ever known. Party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. Hi, and uh, welcome back to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s. Um, so in our last instalment, I uh, waxed lyrical about Leonardo DiCaprio and American heartthrobs. But I mentioned we hadn't spoken about another, um, I guess, really significant heartthrob um, along the lines of the kind of men that we were talking about. And that, of course, is Hugh Grant. Well, I say Hugh Grant. Chloe says Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. Uh, it's the Adelaide accent thing. I, I know I sound a little bit like Alexander Downer, sometimes Alexander Downer, as he's correctly known. Um, so I would say that, you know, my my affection for Hugh Grant is deeply qualified, not only by my knowing about this, but, but the fact that in researching this episode, I have had to revisit Hugh Grant's notorious 1995 sex scandal, which we'll get to in a minute. I think that more seriously, Hugh Grant is an interesting case study in a celebrity's redemption and the re- the reasons and the means by which a celebrity who finds himself embroiled in a sex scandal for which he is entirely to blame can actually kind of pull himself up out of that and become, you know, I guess kind of both a redemptive figure and also, you know, quite an upstanding figure in, in a whole other field of activism. So we'll get to that in a minute. But of course, the immediate... I guess, kind of attraction, the reason for Hugh Grant's celebrity in the 1990s is because he he represents a kind of flattened out English poshness. He's diffident, he's endearing, he's witty, he's very English, he's kind of, you know, upper middle class, sort of bordering on aristocratic. I could go on for hours about, you know, what Hugh Grant represents in the insanely gradated um, class strata of England, but I won't because that'd be really boring. Um... But it does seem to be he's a, a sort of figure who people continue to be infatuated by. Like, I mean, you know, this is despite the fact that men of his status and men of his privilege, men with his, you know, insanely crisp accent, they the way that they abuse that privilege is on record. I mean, hello, Prince Andrew, although he was never charming. So the question for this episode is how did Hugh Grant redeem himself when a sex scandal at the height of his celebrity in 1995 by rights should have killed his career. Yeah, which is which is quite the question to be tackling, I think, in fifteen minutes or less. But but I guess what the point one of the points at least that you were making there, Chloe, is that by the middle of the decade, by nineteen ninety five and this sex scandal, Hugh Grant is Hugh Grant, Hugh Grant is extremely famous. Yes, and that's largely off the back of four weddings and a funeral, which was, you know, kind of a it kind of set the tone for a lot of 1990s rom-coms that followed and for the career of Richard Curtis, who was its writer and its director, I think. And, you know, much as Leonardo DiCaprio's late career is tied up with Steven Spielberg, so Hugh Grant's early career is tied up with Richard Curtis, who sort of wrote these foppish, endearing 
um, these are popish endearing English characters and found their perfect representative in Hugh Grant. Like Hugh Grant is often identified with these characters when really they came straight out of the mind of Richard Curtis. So by 1995, Hugh Grant is really, really famous and he almost threw it all away because he was found on, I think it was on Hollywood Boulevard in LA, um, and he was charged with, to put it in the very technical terms, engaging in a lewd act with a sex worker named Divine Brown. So, of course, this had immediate repercussions for his career. Legally, it's quite interesting because Hugh Grant pleaded no contest. He was fined about $1,100 US and he was placed on two years probation. Divine Brown, meanwhile, was given a 180-day prison sentence for parole violations, and that's notwithstanding the fact that she was also fined. And they both had to attend AIDS education sessions. When I was looking at this, I was doing kind of, I was kind of going through a bit of a mental exercise and thinking what would happen if this was a scandal today. And you do feel like it would have been career-ending for Hugh Grant. And there are obviously issues that would have been raised around inequalities in, in racial, racial injustices that were meted out to Divine Brown and the fact that, you know, she is, I would, I would assume, you know, with very scant knowledge of the actual details of the case, she is really a victim here. But that didn't come up at all. It was all about Hugh Grant, this tawdry sex scandal, this, you know, kind of disheveled looking um his his mugshot when from from the police file it was entirely about him and the, and that mugshot of course was everywhere but but the time where we are speaking about Chloe as much as you said there's no social media this also happened of course at at the height of the kind of paparazzi um, madness, I guess, that, that surrounds uh, other British figures, of course, you know, not the least of who is, is Princess Diana that we've spoken about on this. So so does that play a role as well, do you think? Well, well, yes, it does. And it's also really interesting if you think that, think about that in light of this, the ongoing trajectory of Hugh Grant's career, because, you know, to kind of get to the end before we've even really started, he has sort of remade himself as a, as a privacy campaigner and as a campaigner for press regulation. And he's fiercely defensive of his private life. And you can't help but think that that has to be tied up with this incident in some way. He's, but he's also not the sort of celebrity who we've spoken before about before on this podcast who manages paparazzi by and manages the media by relentlessly sharing themselves. Like he has actually, he's actually incredibly defensive about that. And I suspect that that may be, maybe that's been something that's been of cost to him in some way as a, as an actor. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I mean, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is also like that. You know, he he is he's famously very private, and as a lot of the articles that I read about him say, you know, we we actually know very little about Leonardo DiCaprio's day to day life. You know, as if we should or we have a right to, which again comes straight out of the nineteen nineties. And, and it is really it's quite astonishing because you feel like in the nineties there was this sense of people feeling like they had a right to celebrities' lives, and that was very much mediated through the paparazzi. After Princess Diana's death, there was kind of a reckoning with that and a retreat into, you know, this sort of position of, yeah, maybe we should respect celebrities and their right to privacy and their right to a private life. And then sort of by way of reality TV and the Kardashians, we've got to a completely different scenario where it's celebrities who are offering themselves up for public consumption in an incredibly, I don't know, just a kind of an overwhelming and incredibly profitable way. So in a sense, I guess Leo and Hugh Grant, they're kind of, they're holdovers from that moment where people actually did reject 
you know, the, the kind of hyper, hyper, the commercialization of celebrities and their identities. But I want to go back. I want to go back to the immediate aftermath of the Hugh Grant sex scandal. Because I was watching the interview that he gave on American TV about this. And it's really interesting to watch in light of the way that famous men who've been found out for sexual misconduct often behave these days. Because Hugh Grant, he says... Actually, Pete, this will be a moment for you to insert a video, oh, God, but, the video, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Hugh Grant, he doesn't make excuses. You know, you, I think you know in life uh, pretty much what's a good thing to do and what's a, b- a bad thing. And um, I did a bad thing, and there you have it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's... Oh, wow. So he actually just, just straight up said, my bad. Yeah, yeah. And I think your tone of surprise says a lot about how different that whole situation is today. So he issues this massive mea culpa on on primetime TV and he makes but he also makes it very clear that he's been personally humiliated. He also makes it very clear that his aren't the biggest problems in the world. He talks about people who have sent him letters who are in much more sympathetic situations than he is. But at the same time when you're watching this video you think oh yeah he's he's definitely kind of weaponizing the Hugh Grant charm the you know a witty and hapless persona of this you know this this good English bloke. And look I do think that English charm is particularly effective effective in the United States like you just go back to four weddings and a, and a funeral and Hugh Grant's character and and the effect that he has on the American woman Andy McDowell's character in that film you know there's a, there's a particular appeal I think to Americans there well and also the effect that he has on the American film star in his real his great comeback film Notting Hill who was played by the other 1990s icon Julia Roberts like, but we can contrast, you know, this behaviour, which I think is quite... You've watched the interview, and I think he's quite genuine, even while he is playing to a character. He's quite sincere. But you contrast that with people like Harvey Weinstein, who has come up with a lot of excuses for his bad behaviour, even while he's still pleading not guilty to criminal charges. Like, Harvey Weinstein, one of the excuses he's given for his behaviour is to say that I came of age in the 60s and 70s, I'm quoting here, when all the rules about behaviour and workplaces were different. I guess, Chloe, that kind of brings to mind a a discussion that's actually um, pretty alive at the moment, I think, which is about, I I guess, historical judgement and and whether we should judge people by the standards of their time or not. Yeah, and this is something that comes up all the time because obviously we're living through a moment of intense and great reckoning. We're not talking just about sexual mis- sexual misconduct of powerful men. We're also talking, of course, about the statues that are, you know, and the, the accounting for imperialism and slavery and racism in the past. Um, I thought that this Harvey Weinstein, his way of making excuses, and it kind of applies to a lot of these men, you know, people like Quentin Tarantino, who we spoke about in the last instalment, they they kind of, they're using a historian's trick. They're contextualising their actions as a way of asking for understanding, but they're also doing that as a way of asking for forgiveness. And I think a historian's response to that should always be to actually examine what sort of agency they had in that situation. So Harvey Weinstein, he might have been influenced and his, you know, his understanding of what was acceptable might have been contextualised by growing up in the 60s and the 70s, but that, does, that doesn't mean that there weren't other thoughts and other opinions out there. And it doesn't mean that he didn't have, you know, he's an enormously powerful person. It doesn't, didn't mean that he didn't have influence over his own choices. Agency matters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting as well that all of the men that we are talking about are, are men who came to prominence in the 90s. 
yes, they came to prominence at the end of history, but and you know, and a lot of the this behaviour was going on in the nineteen nineties. So apparently, the end of history didn't include women because you know we are still being forced to make history and we're still forcing people to take account for action, their historical actions. Okay, so then it's fairly clear that that Hugh Grant is kind of an an outlier in this way, as much as he still kind of embodies a particular form of 90s masculinity. But how, how do you think kind of all these threads, Chloe, are, are playing out in popular culture more broadly when we're talking about masculinity in the 1990s? Well, I was really struck in the last instalment when you were talking about Bruce Willis and this very sort of classic, assertive, Ameri- all-American masculinity, which I would say is you know a bit of a hangover from the Cold War era. By the time we get to the 1990s, we do still see that sort of assertive masculinity and this, you know, and what the kind of Tarantino-inspired aestheticised violence, but it's addressing what is, you know, really a crisis of masculinity. And this is something that's been written about extensively. So, you know, there were films like American Beauty and Fight Club that came out and, you know, sort of ultimately mystified and, you know, I, I think kind of seduced critics who made them into either, you know, award winners or cult favourites which were all about this alienate, this apparent alienation of white middle-class men from the very materialistic society of the US in the 90s that satisfied all their objective and, mater- and material needs. So they go on these, you know, I can think, I mean, I would say these kind of preposterous, um, you know, soul-searching missions that mostly involve, you know, bouts of violence or um, preying on teenage girls. It's. I think it's really interesting to look at these films, not, you know, not in and of themselves, because I, quite frankly, I'm not that interested in them, but also as as cultural moments, because they were, like I said, taken incredibly seriously, and they won lots of awards. And this was to go back to what you said in the last instalment. This was about men, in a sense, reclaiming the critical attention and the popular attention that they thought had been lost um, with the rise of this, you know, more assertive, assertive femininity and, you know, this assertive third wave feminism, I've said before, I don't like waves, but I'll use it there, um, of the 1990s. They, they, they were, they'd always been, always been at the centre of culture. They'd been displaced and they were claiming that back. I guess just like um, Hugh Grant never really left either. No, no, he kind of, like, and I think Hugh Grant, he has, he's, he's an interesting guy because he has, he has quite a nonchalant attitude to his own fame. Like, if you read any of his interviews, he doesn't seem to take himself that seriously as an actor. He doesn't take the business of film that seriously. He just sort of pops up and... Well, I mean, he's essentially been, like, trading off playing the same character for 20 years. Well, yeah. Well, he has kind of... He has he has moved on. He's evolved a little bit. Um, his villain in the Paddington films is excellent. But apparently your daughter isn't interested in them, so you might have to Not yet. They're a little bit old for it. We'll get there. <laughs> um, yeah, so Hugh Grant, he, after the sex scandal, he basically went on hiatus for a few years and he came back in Notting Hill where, again, he played that foppish English gentleman. But one of the a really, so a really interesting thing happened, and this connects with what we were saying before about celebrity culture and paparazzi, paparazzi and press intrusion on celebrities' lives. So Hugh Grant was a victim of phone hacking, which by a British tabloid, which was a huge scandal in the UK about 10 years ago. It led to the closure of one of their major uh, major daily tabloid newspapers, which, you know, is a big deal in the UK if you know anything about that culture. 
But following that, he became a leading campaigner for press regulation and for privacy laws. And it's followed from that that he's gone through something of a career renaissance. And what he has done, which I think says something about how clever he, cleverly he has positioned himself, but also how sincere he is in this, is that he has learnt to trade on his prior reputation, whether it's as, you know, a pretty boy and a foppish, foppish upper-crust upper English gent, or as, you know, the disgraced um, protagonist in a mid-90s sex scandal. So, you know, a role that he played quite recently that was really interesting and he won a lot of awards for was as the disgraced uh, former Liberal Party leader in the UK, Jeremy Thorpe. Okay, so perhaps unfair of me to say that he has only played the same character. Maybe that was a bit harsh. Um, Chloe, as, as we wrap up, I guess, can you, can you tell us what Hugh Grant means? You've got me saying Hugh Grant and not Hugh Grant. This is my evolution <laughs> over the course of the episode. Um, what does he mean, I guess, for, for 1990s culture and masculinity? I think to really zero in on a point I've been trying to make in this instalment, I think it is really interesting how... Hugh Grant really successfully has managed his own rehabilitation because I think the initial scandal says so much about the 1990s in that while it was really bad and it had some pretty serious repercussions for Hugh Grant's career, they weren't, it wasn't the sort of permanent damage that I think that we would see, um, we would see it happen today. I also think that the fact that he was able to kind of dig himself out of that hole through a combination of candidness, which, like I said, I think was completely honest, but also an understanding of sort of the role he was assigned to play in this kind of firmament of of um, heartthrobs in the 1990s. I think that says a lot about about privilege and also about the ways that men can use it, um, even in what looks like the most benign ways. Yeah, and I guess that kind of um, connects really nicely to what I'd like to talk about in the in the next instalment of this episode, which is a, a very different kind of, of masculinity in the 90s and one that also presents itself as, um, I suppose, benign in a way when it comes to um, relations with, with women and the role of women. And that's when we talk about the rise of grunge music and the kind of particular so-called androgyny that comes with that in the 1990s. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.